Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. In Wisconsin, a terrible but legal slaughter of 216 wild wolves has just concluded. Following the delisting of gray wolves as endangered under the Endangered Species Act, hunters won a legal battle to permit their heinous acts. How could this happen? I want to welcome Megan Nicholson. She is Wisconsin State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. Okay, so yeah, everyone is uh, talking about this uh, Mm -hmm. insane uh, uh, event. So I'll give you an opportunity to explain just what happened uh, so the listeners can all get up to speed. You bet, you bet. Um, So I'm the Wisconsin State Director for the Humane Society of the United States, as you mentioned, and I actually live here in Wisconsin, reside in uh, Madison, and work on policy at a state level that, um, policy that protects animals. And uh, the the recent wolf hunt in Wisconsin was nothing less than a frenzied massacre on an iconic and ecologically important native species. Um, wolves are treasured by so many Wisconsinites across the state and, and across the nation, um, and they're considered sacred to many of our tribes that are located throughout the state. Um, so what happened here is wolves, the rule was listed. Um, it took effect from the the federal delisting. It took effect on January 4th. and. Shortly after that, in a misguided court decision, um, it forced the state to rush into this wolf hunt with little time to seek any input from Wisconsin residents, tribal nations, or the scientific uh, community. Um, The state's Natural Resources Board that oversees wildlife policy set a quota of 200 wolves. And after tribal declarations were made, that did take the quota down to 119. Um, But as we saw, that number did not stick. Um, Explain. During that during that meeting, I, I want to point out that in the past wolf punts that we've had in Wisconsin, the the NRB, as we call them, the Natural Resources Board, has always set the kill permits uh, ten times the quota. This time, even though this, the hunt was listed for about what was supposed to be a, a week long hunt, they they did it and voted for twenty times the quota, so over two thousand permits were made available for what was supposed to be just a week-long hunt. Um, And as we all saw and the nation saw, uh, in less than 60 hours, trophy hunters and trappers completely blew past that quota by 82%. 82%. Let that number resonate. And we've seen quotas go over by one or two animals before, right? 82%. Uh, 216 wolves were killed that were reported and they were they were killed by egregious hunting methods cruel body gripping gripping traps were allowed strangling cable neck snares and uh the majority 86 percent of the wolves that were killed um, in this hunt were chased down uh by packs of dogs that were outfitted with radio collars so uh, very disturbing so it seems like a lot of things went wrong at a lot of yeah. points during this uh, during this procedure. So can you speak a, a little bit more about the State National Resources Board? Who are they, and uh, is this an anomaly? What, did, what was their role yeah. in all this, you know? So the National Resources Board is a, it's a, um, a seven-member citizen board that's put in place. Um, they, their, member, their um, terms run for six years, and 
they are each each member is put in place by the governor who the sitting governor when their term is is to be filled um or their their that slot is open so we've got um members on the board from the former governor and we've got members on the board for for the current governor and we have some laws in wisconsin that state that they have to have a certain amount of have owned a hunting license for a certain amount of time i believe that's at least three members and three members need to have an ag background um and you know i do have to say that originally the board did vote to not hold a february hunt um they they we had a lot of people show up speaking um in opposition to the talk of having a february hunt and this was in january and the the tribe spoke up and they spoke up heavily they they have to by state law be consulted and brought in on these decision making processes and and of course this was pushed through so fast that didn't happen so so once the the lawsuit was brought forth by um, an out-of-state trophy hunting group called hunter nation um they're based in kansas uh and the judge and as i said um misguided decision to force that hunt um the the board just went forth and we were really shocked when we saw the 20 times over quota for the permits. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a large number of hunters on the land at one time. And um, there, there's already been talk um, at following board meetings to, to get that November hunt planned and um, wow. base it off of this extremely outdated wolf management plan we have that says we should only have 350 wolves on the landscape, which is just absolutely ridiculous. So do you think the extent of this was way beyond what the typical citizen, non-hunter, say not deeply involved in animal protection, just your ordinary Wisconsinite? Are they really unhappy with how this went down? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I'll say it wasn't just, it's not just the ordinary um, Wisconsinite. It's not just the animal advocates, we've seen outrage from, from the hunting community, oh. how this was handled. To, to think that they could go over quota as they did is, is baffling. But if you look at the way the Wisconsin statute is written, um, there, are, there are parts of it that, that made this happen. Um, it was, I guess, a combination of reasons. So, one, we we allow packs of dogs to be used, which is which is absolutely egregious. We're the only state that allows packs of dogs to pursue wolves. We're the only state that has a mandated hunt for wolves, and wolves are the only species that a hunt is mandated in Wisconsin. Um, they were allowed to use electronic predator calls, hunt at night, the packs of dogs. And additionally, by law, the hunters don't have to report their kill to the DNR until they have up to 24 hours to do so. And then the state, even if the quota is hit in the zone, um, even if they know they're about to hit that quota, they have to give 24 hours notice before they can actually close that zone. Yeah. So therefore, we go over quota and buy a lot. 
Uh, speak a little bit about the, you know, besides the cruelty to each individual animal, many right. uh, females, many of them probably pregnant, were killed. Yeah. It was not a particularly good season to use the, the pelts that might have been uh, acquired. Mm-hmm. What does this do to the population and the ecosystem? You know, that's a great question, and it's a question that a lot of scientists are asking as well. Um, and even those that have been, were involved in, in writing the original wolf management plan, um, they're asking the same question. We just don't know. We have never held a hunting season that is during um, the mating season for wolves. We've never been through that. Our, our, our seasons have always closed before um, this time frame. So what we do know, as you said, almost half of those the wolves taken were females. Uh, many, many were, were were young pups. Will that will that affect our population in a in a way we haven't experienced before? I would say yes, and there are, there are so many scientists saying saying that as well. Uh, com- entire family groups were completely demolished or broken up. Yeah. Um, having young wolves trying to survive on their own now, or elderly wolves packs. Packs are packs. They work together. They are a family unit. And when you break that up, um, survival gets even harder. So, so we're, we're very concerned, especially since we're already planning for another hunt yeah. in eight months before we'll even know the consequences of this hunt. So I've read a bunch of articles about this, but I don't get a really good flavor of what's happening behind the scenes as far as the politics go. You know, you've got, you know, politically influential hunting organizations. And you also mentioned that hunters at large were not particularly happy with how this went down either. I imagine it stains their reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is going on here that, that this might have happened? You know, we're, we're not really sure. You know, as I said, I work on policy and with with the pandemic, it's been a little bit harder to get in, you know, get into the Capitol. Our hearings haven't been happening as as much as we've seen in the past. But what we have here is a state law that was rushed through yeah. in 20, 2012. It was signed signed into law. And it, I believe it took four months to get that law into place. And coming from a background in policy, that's, in, that's extremely quick. Um, so... The fact that we have this law is just, it's, a, it's egregious and it's ridiculous. Um, I know what I'm hearing is um, citizens contacting their lawmakers and saying, hey, you know, the word shall, Wisconsin shall hold a hunt in statute is, is ridiculous. It should, if you're going to have this law, it should say may, but we shouldn't have this, this law in the first place. We're speaking with Megan Nicholson from the Humane Society of the United States. Megan, in just the last couple of moments, please tell people living in Wisconsin and beyond what they can do to uh, voice their opinion about this. You bet. Um, you know, if if you live in Wisconsin or you have um, fan, friends and family that do, or they live in the Great Lakes regions, um, definitely encourage them to reach out to their lawmakers. Reach out to the the board that I've mentioned on this call, this is an outrage and you have to speak up and you have to speak up continually. If you're able to attend any of these natural resources board meetings, please do so. Um, they're, they are virtually streamed right now, which is something we haven't seen before and it's, it's really 
fantastic that that the public can participate more that way. And follow our Facebook page, um, the HSUS Wisconsin Facebook page. We post action items and just continue to speak up. Megan Nicholson from the Humane Society, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. More with animals today after this break. with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. And unfortunately, they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long, muscular tail like a rudder and stabilizer, permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back. Uh, next up, I want to welcome Amanda White. She is Wildlife Protection Program Manager for the Humane Society of the United States. And uh, just uh, previously, you may have heard my discussion with Megan Nicholson from Wisconsin, and we were speaking about that horrible massacre of gray wolves, uh, legal at that, but really a terrible event. And we wanted to welcome Amanda on to speak about the uh, federal process and how this went down. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so this episode in Wisconsin follows the delisting of gray wolves from the from their protected status under the Endangered Species Act. Am I expressing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So on um, January 4th, a decision went into effect um, that delisted wolves across the lower 48 states. Gray wolves were originally listed under the Federal Endangered Species Act back in the 1970s. Um, and since about 2003, the government has repeatedly tried to remove those federal protections for wolves everywhere in the United States based on the progress they've made toward recovery in just a couple of areas. Um, so we have wolves in the Great Lakes region, and we have wolves out in the Northern Rocky Mountains in Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, and some parts of other states out there. And so in 2011, Congress directed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to take uh, federal protections on, under the Endangered Species Act away from wolves in Montana and Idaho as sort of a nod to agricultural and trophy hunting interests. And then wolves in Wyoming lost their federal protections in 2017. Um, as far as wolves in the Great Lakes region, so Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin go, um, wolves there briefly lost their federal protections under the Endangered Species Act in 2011. Um, and over the next three years, about 1,500 wolves were killed by trophy hunters and trappers before protections were restored. Um, following uh, our a successful litigation by the Humane Society of the United States and other animal protection groups, um, and then that that decision, that victory was upheld on appeal in 2017. Yeah. Then um, 
In November of last year, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service again published a final rule that removed those Federal Endangered Species Act protections for gray wolves across the whole lower 48 states. And that's the rule that went into effect on January 4th, which returned management of wolves to states. Um, And states then have the ability to decide how they're going to manage those wolves. And as we saw in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago, um, that often means allowing trophy hunting and trapping. Okay, so this really reveals a weakness in the federal protections. Uh, So you now need to sort of fight this state by state when this happens. Does the Humane Society have a policy about what happens when a species loses its protection? Or is it opposed to any species losing their federal protections? Well, one of the reasons, you know, we're focused on this is as, you know, apex native carnivores, you know, well, to begin with, wolves have only really recovered in a very small part of yeah. their historic range. They, they're still absent from over 70% of, you know, currently suitable habitat. Um, and then as we've seen with, with the individual states, quite often, you know, they, they cater to the trophy hunting and agricultural interests and allow the trophy hunting and trapping of gray wolves. You know, we're not talking about killing gray wolves for food yeah. or anything like that. It, it really is just a trophy hunt. Yeah. And so that's something we're, we're very opposed to. Yeah. Okay. So what has to happen now? I've spoken in the past and Lori has as well about the strength of the Humane Society and the resources that they could bring to bear. What's in store? So we, along with our allies, uh, did file a lawsuit um, against the delisting decision on January 14th. And basically, as I mentioned, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, when they delisted wolves, they were citing what they called successful recovery efforts as the reason for that. However, again, as I mentioned, the science shows that really wolves are still threatened nationwide. Um, and so, and again, some wolf populations like those on the West Coast and in the Southern Rocky Mountains are especially small and vulnerable, and they risk disappearing forever because of this delisting decision. And so our lawsuit argues that by treating the plight of those fragile populations as insignificant and ignoring the other natural and man-made threats that wolves nationwide face, like climate change and habitat loss, uh, the government is in violation of the Endangered Species Act and its legal duty of protecting wolves and helping them recover. These protections were removed under the prior administration, and here we are under the Biden administration. Does that change the landscape? Well, we have seen, you know, as I mentioned, we've seen these delisting decisions going back through multiple administrations. Um, When President Biden entered office, he did sign an executive order called Protecting Public Health and the Environment and Restoring Science that directs federal agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service to review any regulations that were promulgated under the Trump administration that are or might be inconsistent with the best science or other national or climate objectives. So included in that review will be a review of uh, the decision to delist gray wolves from the Endangered Species Act. So for now, you know, these rules are still in effect and it's it's really too early to know what will come of that review. Um, We will be pushing the Biden administration to take 
the necessary action to restore protections for gray wolves. Um, but in the meantime, we're also pursuing our, our litigation as well as, as I'm sure Megan talked about, um, you know, looking at, at the different states and what can be done on the ground there. And so as we conclude here, uh, tips or uh, guidance for interested listeners who want to take action? I think definitely for anybody who lives in the Great Lakes region or really any state um, where wolves also live, it's important to pay attention to what your decision makers are doing, whether it's in, you know, the state legislature or different state agencies like fish and game agencies, departments of natural resources, and just um, paying attention to any decisions they're making about wolves and um, ways that you can speak up. Uh, you can also follow um, our pages on Facebook. We have a page dedicated to wildlife protection, um, as well as individual state pages where we post actions that people can take. So, yeah, I think definitely contacting your decision makers and letting them know that we don't want wolves and other native carnivores trophy hunted. Amanda White, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you so much. Okay, more with the show after this quick break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adults stand six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages, which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. 
The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. We've all seen the videos of children who suffer from various physical, emotional, and mental conditions interacting with animals in therapy programs. They ride, pet, hold, or even swim with a variety of animals in the name of treatment. And broadly, this is referred to as animal-assisted therapy. Yesterday, I searched animal-assisted therapy, and the first video that popped up was from a children's hospital showing testimonials from patients, parents, and therapists about the value of having dogs interact with the sick and depressed children. And even though I'm familiar with the criticisms of animal-assisted therapy, I have to tell you, on the video, it looks awesome, and it seems to feel so good. Well, a few weeks ago, the topic of animal-assisted therapy was nicely reviewed by Professor Hal Herzog in a Psychology Today article titled, Does Animal-Assisted Therapy Really Work? Hal Herzog is a professor of psychology at Western Carolina University, and he's been studying aspects of human-animal interactions for 30 years. Professor Herzog is author of over 100 research articles and the book, some we love, some we hate, some we eat. Why it's so hard to think straight about animals. Welcome to the program, Hal. Well, I'm so glad to be on here. I'm really glad you asked me, Lori. What is animal-assisted therapy? Well, animal-assisted therapy is the involvement in uh, animals in a variety of clinical contexts. And this can be medical, medical context. You know, for example, uh, bringing animals into hospitals with uh, you know, children's hospitals for children that are chronically ill. Chronically ill. It could be the use of animals in a psychologically therapeutic uh, context. For example, the use of uh, you know dogs for the treatment of, for example, wounded warriors, veterans with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It could be swim with dolphins programs for children with Down syndrome. So it's, it's a wide variety of integration of uh, animals, usually dogs, but not always into medical and psychological context. Hal, the history of using animals for treating various types of ailments is, is quite interesting. How did it get started? The, the idea that, that animals can have benefits to people, uh, including almost miraculous healing benefits, really goes back for, for, for centuries. Even Sigmund Freud felt that uh, his dog had a calming effect on some of his patients. But in modern times, the use really goes back in the 1960s to a, a psychologist named Boris Levinson, who found out that some of his patients would really open up if his dog, whose name was Jingles, was in the room. And uh, he presented a paper on this to the American Psychological Association in 1961, and it was not taken very seriously at the time. But subsequently, it's really, it's really taken off. One of the uh, real cornerstones terms of research was a study that was done in 1980 by Erica Friedman, who's still very involved in this area. And uh, Erica's doctoral dissertation was on uh, what enables some people to survive heart attacks, uh, whereas other people don't. 
And uh, as part of her dissertation, she uh, looked at uh, uh, about 100 heart attack, heart attack victims. And she was interested in, in, uh, in the effects of uh, you know, social networking. And she, just by accident, not by accident, but you know, she just threw in a question, now, do you have a pet? And when she did her subsequent analysis a year later to find out who lived and who didn't, a year after the heart attack, she found out that the people with pets were five times more likely to be alive than the people without pets. And this is what really jump-started the, the, the field, I think, of, of animal-assisted therapy. Oh, that's fascinating. How, how widely practiced is animal-assisted therapy? Well, it's increasingly widely uh, widely practiced. I saw a, a study recently, actually it was a report by the Center for Disease Control, that said that 60% of hospices in the United States incorporate, have the option of incorporating animals in, uh, you know, in, in their hospice programs. Uh, I recently looked at the uh, Psychology Today list of clinical psychologists, and an awful lot of them, one of the things that they offer as part of their practice is animal-assisted therapy. Many, many hospitals now have uh, animal visitation programs. So this is becoming increasingly widespread. Uh, there was a study recently published in the Journal of Anthrozoos, and they found that uh, this is a study of, uh, of parents, and they found that parents were more likely to approve the use of animal-assisted therapy than they were for pharmacological, that is drug therapy, for kids with hyper, hyperactivity. You covered a large number of both positive and negative facts and observations about animal-assisted therapy, but mostly you voice skepticism about many of the claims and a lot of the research. What are some of the main points you covered in your article, Hal? Well, the, the, the central point that I make is that there's a lot of media attention given to this, and it's become becoming wide, widely believed that animal-assisted therapy works. There's a lot of media hype about this. And I, I only took this on because I was asked to write a chapter for a, a, an upcoming edition of the Handbook for Animal-Assisted Therapy on the research challenges, challenges of, of this area. And so I, be, I began to look at the research, the research, and what I found was that uh, the research does not match the hype in terms of, in terms of the findings. So essentially what I found was that the uh, problems with animal-assisted therapy really fall into uh, two categories. Uh, the first category is uh, most of the studies we have are methodologically weak. And I'm not the first person to point this out. A lot of people have pointed this out. Mm -hmm. There's very few randomized controlled trials. Uh, most of the studies don't have control groups. There's small samples. One of the big problems, and you sort of, sort of alluded to a little bit when you see these videos of people interacting with, with animals, yeah. is the question of separating the interaction with the animal with just general novelty effects. So for example, let's say you uh, take your, uh, your kid with autism to, you know, down to Florida for a course of, of dolphin therapy. So you spend a week down there paying $700 a day to swim with dolphins. Well, that's really cool, you know. So the, the question is, 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 the, is the benefit derived from, you know, derived from sort of being in this cool place and swimming around with these really neat animals and having fun for, you know, for a week, or is there something special about the interaction with the animal? So it's sometimes difficult to, difficult to, uh, to, to separate those effects out. Then there's, a, there's another set of, of problems that, I'm, that isn't just a problem with animal-assisted therapy. It's a, it's a problem with medicine in general, and, and scientists are, are increasingly worried about this. And it's, it's, the, it's a publication bias 
um, because researchers tend to publish positive results and they don't tend to publish negative results. So for example, there was a recent FDA study of antidepressant drugs. And when they looked at the published trials of these drugs, the published trials showed that 90% of the time the drugs worked. But when the FDA included the unpublished studies, the drugs are only effective in 50% of the trials. And I found the same thing when I looked at the animal-assisted therapy literature. Almost every study that's been published on animal-assisted therapy has worked. And the question is, is it because animal-assisted therapy always works, or is it because the unpublished studies simply get put in the file drawer? And I think this is, I think this is a serious problem in, in, in medicine, clinical medicine generally. Now, you mentioned about dolphins. Let's talk about the animals a bit. It's one thing to employ dogs or horses in a program, but another to use, say, dolphins, who should be in the wild but are confined in order to serve the patients. What are your thoughts on the ethics of the therapy? That's one of the areas that I do have uh, strong feelings about. And I don't think the evidence right now is very good that dolphin therapy in in and of itself actually is particularly effective. There was a recent study uh, that came out just just, uh, in the last issue of the journal Anthrozoos. It was actually a pretty good study that did show it had some small beneficial effects on kids with Down syndrome. Uh, But for the most part, I don't think you're getting your money's worth with dolphin therapy, given the expense of it. But let's pretend for a second that it does work. To me, that's even more problematic, because it might work to some extent, for 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 the for the child or for the depressed middle-aged guy that's you know desperately looking for treatment, but the idea that we keep these animals that are very very bright, essentially in the uh, dolphin equivalent of Guantanamo Bay, because you know we want to use them for human treatments. For me, I don't think it's justified. More with Hal Herzog after break. We're talking about animal-assisted therapy. Don't go away. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. 
These are serious dangers, causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're speaking to Hal Herzog, and we're talking about animal-assisted therapy. Hal, continue your thoughts, please, on the ethics of using animals in therapy. Sure. I think there's a uh, big difference between using dolphins for therapy and, say, a golden retriever for therapy. So let's say for a second that animal-assisted therapy does work. Uh, I think there's a, a, a different sort of moral problem with using dolphins than there is, for example, you know, a, a dog or a domestic animal who's used to living with people and who, you know, you know, you know our, our friend as opposed to an unwilling captive. And there's these reading programs that use dogs. And I, I've seen programs where children are on the ground reading aloud to a dog. What do you think's going on there? Yeah, you know, I, I think one thing that's going on is that, is that, is that kids like dogs. I, I think the idea of reading to a dog in a low-stress situation might be easier than reading to a, to a, to a person. Uh, for example, uh, Karen Allen has found that uh, people are much less s- stressed if, if they uh, have to do math problems in front of uh, their dog as opposed to their spouse. <laughs> So, so it may be. So it may. It may be the same. It may be the, the, the same thing with, uh, you know, with with, with, with with reading with dogs. Yeah. Uh, I did see a study recently that was struck me as being problematic, in the same regard from an ethical point of view. And this was a study in which they had college students write about their emotional problems uh, over a series of days, and half the college students were with in the presence of a of a therapy dog, and half the college students did it, uh, not being in the presence of the dog. Um, this, the, the use of, of writing about emotional experience has actually been shown to be very th- therapeutic, whether or not there's a dog present or not. Um, and they found that the dogs were, were particularly good in terms of reducing the stress in these students. However, the interesting thing is that one of these were two trained therapy dogs. At the end of the study, one of the dogs completely freaked out and had to be taken away from therapy programs. And so I think in that, this is the first evidence that I've seen uh, that at least is in the literature of where uh, one of the dogs actually seemed to have taken on the sort of emotional burden of, 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 of being a therapist. So I'm really, I'm really curious about this. And this was for the first time. I was really thinking, well, maybe there is an emotional cost to the animal of being a therapy, being a therapy animal. Hal, you have a wonderful book. Some we love, some we hate, some we eat. Why it's so hard to think straight about animals. Your book is an introduction to anthrozoology, and you refer to yourself as an anthrozoologist. What is that? Well, it's a relatively new field of study. We we go back about twenty or thirty years. Uh, most people, as you mentioned, have never heard of it. It's basically the study of human relationships with other species. And it's really wide-ranging. That's one of the things that I love about it. So, for example, the last issue of uh, the journal Anthrozoos, which is the major journal in our field, included articles that range from how ethical vegetarians deal with living with cats, you know, because their cats need to eat meat, even if, they're, even if their owners <laughs> find it immoral. Right. Uh, there was a paper on the role of zoos in modern society, and then there was a study on the impact of dolphin therapy on children with Down syndrome. So, so that sort of just sort of illustrates the, the wide range of, 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 of topics that anthrozoologists study. 
And the other thing is that we're, in addition to being interdisciplinary, we're also international. So, for example, that issue of the journal included papers from people from the United States, Australia, the Netherlands, the UK, and Denmark. So it, it, it's a relatively small and obscure field of science, but it's tons of fun and it's very, very exciting. Why is the formal study of anthrozoology important? That's a really great question, and it's important because some of the most important relationships that we have are with other species. Uh, when I ask my students, you know, with, how many of you have a pet, how many of you deeply love a pet, and how many of you is your pet one of the most important creatures in your lives? So about 60% of them will raise, their, will raise their hand. And the other thing is that animals are involved in almost, this is, this is what fascinates me, animals are involved in almost every aspect of human life. So the way that most people deal with animals most of the time is by eating them. So uh, that's, you know, that raises you know, tons of sort of interesting psychological questions, ethical questions, uh, environmental questions. Animals are involved in our religious imagery. They're involved in our, in our art. They're involved in our literature. Uh, in some societies, they've become our best friends. In some societies, they're, they're pariahs. So it, it, to me, it's just an absolutely fascinating window into general questions about human nature. In your position as a professor of psychology, are you finding that students are interested in the field? Oh, they're completely interested in the field. And one of the, one of the uh, things that's happened in the last 10 years is that programs are popping up uh, in anthrozoology. And there's several colleges now that offer majors in anthrozoology. Uh, there's a lot of courses being taught on various aspects of uh, our relationships with other animals. And there's just, there's just a tremendous amount of interest in this, in this field right now. Hal Herzog, thank you so much. Can you tell us your website? Yeah, it's halherzog.com. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? Well, you should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at AIanimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support.